It is a, a joy to be here at our church today, and um, we are uh, just excited about uh, seeing what God is doing in our midst in this season, and uh, that's part of what our message is on today. I do bring you greetings from North Greenville, and uh, I'm going to invite uh, Catherine Mikulski uh, to come join me. She's going to be reading our scripture passage today. We'll be in John chapter 1 if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, but I will mention this, that Dr. Mikulski is one of our academic leaders at our Greer campus. And a lot of people still don't realize that we now have a campus in Greer. Uh, we had a campus at Fairview for a while, but we've combined uh, all of our graduate programs and uh, online programs there in what used to be the Ryan Steakhouse headquarters. And uh, I just got a photo the other day from our team there that we had passed 490 students on that campus. We think we'll break 500 this fall. And for those of you who know anything about the history of North Greenville, it was only 25 years ago or so we had 300 students in the whole university. And now we have 500 just in Greer. We'll be at about 2,400 uh, for the fall. And part of the reason that we're having that growth there is uh, leaders like Dr. Mikulski. And uh, she's going to read for us today, beginning with verse 10. And so if you'll go ahead and share those uh, verses with us this morning. From the gospel according to John chapter 10, 1, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who has hit the Father's side, he has made him known. Thank you so much. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to know that we do not need to fear that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter uh, what we may have in front of us, uh, that we can know without a doubt that you have a plan and that that plan is rooted in your love for us. And so God, as we look at these passages this morning, help us uh, to be confident in the knowledge that you love us and that you have a plan for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So one of my favorite parts of the year is Christmas. And when you are a professor and you work at an academic institution, you love Christmas because you get that nice break there in the middle of the year. And I love Christmas anyways, just because I love to give things and I love to get things. That's always fun as well. And uh, I used to have a secretary named Suzanne, and I drove her crazy because every month on the 25th of the month, I would always, as I walked in, say, seven months till Christmas, four months till Christmas. And it kind of drove her crazy. Even after after I stopped working with her, sometimes I would text her on the 25th and just say, just want to remind you, four months till Christmas, so she would always stay happy. And I thought about that this morning because this is the first passage that we've gotten to out of the New Testament for those of you who've been doing the unified readings. And so uh, in January, we started with Genesis, and we've worked our way now all the way through these months, and now in August, we finally have gotten to the New Testament. And those of you who are doing the readings this week may have actually thought that. 
finally, we're in the New Testament. It's like, yay, we're finally here. It's like it's Christmas time in the Word all over again. And so as we're coming to this passage today, what I wanted to do was to just look at this and think about this idea that as we're transitioning into the New Testament, there is no disconnect with the Old Testament. And this is actually a point of contention right now among some. There are some people who say that we need to stop looking at the Old Testament so much. But I would argue that there's no such thing as not looking at it enough because it is the story of Christ every bit as much as the New Testament is the story of Christ. And we're going to look at that this morning uh, just to see kind of how that is. And the incredible peace and assurance that we can have that is specifically rooted in that idea. I want to tell you about a conversation I had with a friend who was an atheist a number of years ago, uh, and it's interesting to be quizzed on your theology by an atheist, especially when you're a seminary-trained pre- preacher, right? Uh, and so the atheist wanted to check and make sure I really believed what I said I believed. So he, he kind of started going down the list, and one of the things he said was, you don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead, do you? And I said, yes. And he said, you do know like that's not supposed to happen, right? And I said, that's why we call it a miracle. Yes, I believe in that. And then he said, do you really believe that God is omniscient, that he, that he knows all things? And I said, yes, absolutely. And he said, do you believe that God is omnipresent, that God, does, that God is aware of everything and has presence? Absolutely. All that. And he, he, he got to the opening of, of the Bible and he said, do you really think God made everything and God generated all the systems that we study and everything? And I said, absolutely. He said, do you know how big your God would have to be to be able to do all of those things? And I said, yes, absolutely. I understand how big my God would have to be. And what he was getting at was he was measuring things on a finite level as if God were supposed to be inside of history, inside of space, inside of time, inside his own finite imagination of what God could be like. And I was trying to tell him God is bigger than you are. God is bigger than this world is. In fact, God is outside time, space, and all of these things because he's the one that actually set those things into being. And so when we come to the Gospel of John here, at the opening of the Gospel of John, John is here addressing exactly this idea of helping us to understand that we can't talk about Jesus and we can't talk about what he did in the first century as he was walking among men and women without talking first about who Jesus really is. And so John, when he opens up the gospel here, look at verse 1 with me. Uh, Kevin just quoted this from memory, so that was awesome, Kevin. He said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being with, through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And this is what John's first starting off with is, For us to understand the story of Jesus, and now he's going to start getting into John the Baptist, and he's going to get into miracles and all that. He's helping us to understand. We can't understand the particulars of Jesus's life without understanding exactly who he was. And what John is asserting here is this, Christ is God, and Christ is the element of God, the person of the Trinity who is generating all of creation in order to ultimately reveal himself to us. And what he's getting at is that we can't come to the New Testament, in this case, the start of a gospel, we can't come to the New Testament without hearkening all the way back to the Old Testament. And in this case, the opening lines, in the beginning was, hearkens right back to Genesis, in the beginning 
God created the heavens and the earth. And it's almost like what John is saying is Genesis has given us a tip of the hand. It's helped us to see something that's here. I am now going to fill you in on even more of that through God's revelation of himself. And so this passage is filled with these ideas that God has revealed himself to us, that he has come as light to make what was invisible now visible, to make what was abstract now concrete, to make what was seemingly impersonal, now totally personal in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, understand what was going on when John wrote this. John was writing in a first century context where the Romans had now taken over Israel. And don't be mistaken, the Roman Empire was a brutal empire unless you were a Roman citizen. The taxes were incredible. They're the ones that introduced things like uh, capital punishment through crucifixion. It was a brutal regime. And the Israelites are wondering what's going on here. They had not had God speak to them during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually centuries. Now the Romans have come in. They no longer are in control of their country. They've got brutal regime in. They've got incredible taxes. You think your taxes are bad. Their taxes were really bad. They now have had Christ come in, so they've had this hope, but now they've seen Christ be persecuted, suffer, die. Then they saw him come back. And now he's ascended into heaven, and now they're trying to figure out what's going on. And what's happening is John is reading into this culture and helping them and then helping us as well by extension to understand that God has a plan, and no matter what's going on, you can trust that God's plan is loving and personal for each and every one of us. So when John opens this up, by the time we get down to verse 10, we've already had him referencing the the creation. Now in verse 10, he's referencing now Christ. And he makes this illusion that Christ was in the world, and then he goes back again to creation. This is the world that God made through him. But now he's saying that the world did not know him. And so here's the image. God has made the world. God now has seen fit to come into the world in the incarnation of Christ, but people are not recognizing him. I have a friend who was in the homecoming court in high school. She was a beautiful, beautiful girl. But then she went to college and she discovered cheap beer and pizza. She put on 45 pounds before Thanksgiving she, her hair changed its texture. Her complexion was terrible. And when she went home for Thanksgiving, she forgot her keys to the house. So she rang the doorbell and her mom came to the door and her mom said, yes, may I help you? Her own mother no longer recognized her. Wow, that's scary. But this is God, the creator of the universe, coming to his people and they're not even recognizing who he is because they're not expecting maybe a baby. Maybe they're not expecting the tenderness. Maybe they're not expecting any of these other things. But look what verse 11 says. He came to his own, and these are the people that do know him. They're his own. They did not receive him. But then verse 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so 12 and 13 are saying that there are people who recognize him. And by the way, we're going to get this starting in verse 35 where we've got these converts that are coming along. And so he comes to the world. At first, people aren't recognizing him, but then they are starting to realize who he is. He's gathering the disciples. He's beginning to preach and proclaim the love of God, even as he's proclaiming the wrath of God. And what's happening here is that slowly but surely, the story is getting out. And then in verse 15, we begin then to have John talking about him. Verse 19, we now have the narrative of 
of what Jesus is doing with uh, John the Baptist, describing his relationship with him. And then we begin to move into miracles. We move into conversions. We move into all these other things. And so John is setting the table not with the manger, but he's setting it with a philosophical statement. And the philosophical statement is this. Jesus did not just come into the world. Jesus made the world. And that prepared it for the coming of Jesus. It's a very different idea, and what it's getting at is this question that's one that I think that our culture often has to, str- has to really wrestle with, and that is this. Was God surprised by sin? Do we have a God who is mugged by current events? You've lost your job. Did that surprise God? This church doesn't have a pastor right now. Did that surprise God? You've had a medical diagnosis. Did that surprise God? And what John is getting at in all of these things is setting us up to where all of us can understand that there is nothing that surprises God because God made this world, God is outside of this world, and God knows everything. And still, he has a plan. So let's look at what this plan starts to look like. Uh, I had somebody uh, ask me one time, do you think God ever wings it? And my answer was, no, God never wings it. That's not the way God operates. Uh, that's the quarterback for the Panthers who's winging it, right? That's a very different thing. Can I, can I dab? Uh, I just, just had to try that. I've never, I've been, I'm in the Carolinas now. Is that a thing? Um, so let me ask you this question. When did God start loving you? Was God surprised by your birth? Was God surprised by your conception? When did God start to love you? And and the answer is actually very clear. Flip over to Romans with me, if you will. Go to Romans chapter 5, and I want to make sure that you're clear on this, because God's relationship with us does not begin when we accept Jesus into our hearts. In fact, it goes much farther than that. Look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so, folks, let's make sure we all understand this. Did Jesus love you when you asked him into your heart? No. Jesus loved you while you were a sinner. In fact, he died for you 2,000 years ago knowing that you were a sinner. Not just that. He died for you knowing that you were helpless. So verse 6 talks about being helpless. Verse, um, 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 the one about sinners. There you go. You can read it faster. Verse 8. That while we were sinners, he's died for us. But the one that really gets me is verse 10 where it says, he died for us when we were yet his enemies. And, And what that gets at is that I'm his enemy before I ask Jesus into my heart. I don't have the redemptive mind of Christ and I don't have the redemptive spirit of Christ in me. And what that means is I am hostile to the gospel, but 2,000 years, yea, even more than that, longer ago than the foundations of the earth, God knew that I would be here and that I would need reconciliation, and he knew that he had a plan in order to affect that. Now, how do I know that that happened before the foundations of the earth? Well, flip over to 1 Peter, if you will. And this is a passage that absolutely blows me away, 1 Peter 1. And let's look at what it says about when the plan for Christ was actually established. So look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're at uh, verse uh, 18. 
says this, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Look at verse 20. For he was chosen, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When was Christ the lamb selected to be the, the, the lamb that was slain for the, found, uh, for the world? It happened before the foundations of the world. Jesus was not mugged while he was here on earth. There's actually a song that sometimes is sung in churches that talks about Jesus being surprised by it. Jesus was not surprised by it. This was plan A from before Adam and Eve were created, y'all. That Jesus would come into the world because God is the one who made the world, Christ generating the world through all of creation, Christ generating, therefore, the first forefather and foremother of us, Adam and Eve. Christ knew what was going to happen, and so God was not surprised by what happened in the Garden of Eden because God is outside of history, and he knew what was going to happen. But the beauty is God also prepared a plan knowing what was going to happen and wove that plan into every part of the universe. One of the reasons I'm pro-life is not just because I believe that genetically life begins at conception, but here's what I also know. God's relationship with every person that's ever lived in history happened before the foundations of the earth. In fact, God knew your name before Adam and Eve were ever even created. Life doesn't begin at conception. It began before the foundations of the earth when God initiated his relationship with you by planning the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Does that blow anybody else away? That blows me away. So think about this as well. When God was going through and doing all these things, God's never been surprised by anything that happened. In fact, when God spoke the universe into existence, he already knew where things were going to go. And he began, to under, he began then to weave the world in such a way as it would constantly point to Christ. So go back to John 1, if you will. I hope you've kept your finger there. Uh, go back to John 1, but we're going to flip back one more page. And we're going to go to the end of Luke. It's interesting to look at the end of Luke and the beginning of John and see how the Old Testament is woven. And again, if you've been doing our church readings through the year, you really have seen this, how things are, are pointing out its way forward. So look at Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be in uh, about verse 25. Uh, and the context here is Jesus is now risen from the dead. He's walking down the road to Emmaus with some disciples. And as they're going back and forth, Jesus is realizing that they still haven't quite figured out what was going on. And Jesus kind of begins to fuss at them. And look at this in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now, let me rephrase that again. Let me, let me repeat that again. He explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Remember, this is the beginning. This is Jesus. There's no New Testament yet. Jesus is taking the words of the Old Testament to these disciples, and he's outlining for them all the things that are about Jesus in the Old Testament. So all the scriptures here is all the scriptures of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is getting at here is if you look in the pages of the Old Testament, you will find God's plan of salvation written large. The law was sent through Moses so that Moses and the law could teach us how we cannot lead perfect lives. 
But that makes us long for something that overcomes the law. And what overcomes the law? What overcomes the law is grace and truth, which the opening of John says came in the fullness of Jesus Christ. So that it's not about us, it's about him. When you study Eastern religions, one of the things you will find in uh, Hinduism is that the god Vishnu supposedly once came to earth and he, he walked as a man, but what he taught us was that we had to suffer for our own sins. The beauty of Jesus Christ is that he came to teach us that he suffered for our sins and therefore we don't have to because God has a plan for us. And God is the one who ultimately has laid all of these things out for us. In fact, it's another thing that I love to talk about is basically this, that Jesus is the embodiment of everything that is in all the scriptures. If this is God's word and God's revelation of himself, then that means we ought to be able to find Jesus all over the place. And in fact, when you go and you begin to study, you begin to find all of these things that are pointing out to where we are groaning by the time Jesus comes in the incarnation, just as each of us are groaning until we come to know Jesus Christ in our own personal lives. And so what that means is that if God has had a plan and that plan transcends the, the creation of the universe and that plan is woven into the universe, then what that ought to do is give us a lot of peace and a lot of comfort. I want to tell you about an experience that I had where um, we were trying to figure out what to do. We were trying to come up with a plan. About 10 years ago, I was teaching at Union University, which is in Tennessee near Memphis, and uh, I was out to eat with the president. And we were sitting at dinner, and uh, the manager of the restaurant came over, and he said, gentlemen, there's a tornado on the ground. It's about to hit the building. We need you to get in the cooler box. Well, that sort of ruined dinner. And uh, so I said, so I got up to kind of leave, and the president said, no, let's go back to campus. Now, y'all, I've been in five tornadoes in my life, physically in five tornadoes. So uh, this was number five that I was about to be in. Um, by the way, don't hang out with me in thunderstorms. It's a bad bad thing. Uh, and so, uh, so the president said, let's go back to campus. So uh, we, we went out to his car, and uh, I've got my door on the handle, and I hear the tornado is like right there. Uh, again, this is the fifth time now I've heard a tornado in my ears. So I told the president, um, I don't know that we need to get in the car. There's a tornado right there. And he said, don't worry about it. Let's go. So I said, yes, sir, because he's my boss. What's he going to do? Fire me, right? So, uh, so I get in the car and we drive back to campus. And as we get to campus, the tornado is cutting right through the middle of campus. And at 7.02 p.m., all the students are on campus. It's the first week of classes. Uh, we, literally, it's the first week of classes. So we're packed with students and all. And uh, we, don't, we, we see the tornado leave campus. We don't see it hits the dorms. So we run out the back to see what's happened. And when we get out to the back, we realize that the, the tornado is literally sliced through the middle of campus. 92% of our dorms were volatilized in less than 30 seconds with 1,100 kids in them. And so we're, we're, we come out, and there's this one women's dorm that had probably 20 young ladies in it, and that does not exist. There's a concrete slab with sewage bubbling out where the fixtures used to be. And President Dockery looked at me, and he said, this is bad, isn't it? And I said, yes, sir, this is really bad. And then we went to one of our classroom buildings that the roof had blown off, and, and we knew that there was water all inside. And he said, this is bad, isn't it? And I said, yes, sir, this is really bad. And we made our little loop, and we came back around, and uh, the emergency management uh, leader for the county uh, got us, and he said, I need you guys to go downtown. We need you to go to the, the command center. And uh, President Dockery said, well, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. What are you talking about? 
talking about? And the guy said, look, you, you need to go somewhere and have a plan. And the plan was this. We think we may have 200 dead students on this campus, and you need to think about what you're going to tell their moms and dads. Now, now y'all, that, that's a sobering conversation to have with somebody. So we drove downtown, and we're trying to think, okay, what will we do with press releases? What are we going to do? How do we call them? What are we going to do? And then one by one, we started getting reports. This building was clear. That building was clear. There were about 50 or 60 students that were trapped in building collapses. Uh, many of them had to go to the hospital, but incredibly, nobody died. It, 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 it's a miracle. Nobody died. But we're sitting there in the basement, and we're trying to think, well, what do we do next? And Dr. Dockery said, anybody got a calendar? And uh, the other guy that was with us, Tim, uh, pulled up calendar on his phone and handed it to him. I said, what do you need a calendar for? You know, we're, we're in the middle of chaos. Why do you need a calendar? That seemed like an odd request. And he said, oh, I got to figure out what day we're going to reopen. I said, sir, can I remind you, we've just lost all of our dorms. One of our classroom buildings is substantially damaged. All the buildings on campus are damaged. Uh, there's rescue people all over the place. What do you mean, when are we going to reopen? And he said, hey, if I don't convince everybody I have a plan, then it's all over. And he said, I don't have a plan, but I'm going to convince everybody that I've got a plan. And so we started calling people. The president has a plan. We're going to reopen in two weeks. President has a plan. We're going to do this. President has a plan. We're going to do this. And to watch what happened when people were convinced that there was a plan was incredible because that plan gave people hope. We're in the middle of chaos. I mean, it's, it's the only way to describe it. It's absolute chaos. But the fact that one person said, don't worry about it. I've got a plan. We're going to move forward. Everybody rallied around beyond that like you would not believe. And we did. We reopened in two weeks. We graduated on time. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And it was an incredible example of leadership. But let me help you to understand something. He was winging it. <laughs> he had no idea what was going on. I still remember there was one meeting we went into and he said something and um, I, I came back and I said, really? And he said, I don't know. I'm, I'm just pulling this stuff out. I'm just making it up as we go along. Y'all, our God does not improvise. He does not have to improvise. God knew that on this date, we would be without a pastor. And you know what? He's got a plan. And he's got a purpose. And he will reveal that to us at the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, when our hearts are ready for it. Some of you this week have dealt with a medical diagnosis. Some of you are dealing with family crises. Some of you are dealing with job issues. I, I don't know what each and every one of you are dealing with, but you know what? I don't know, but God does. And one day, years from now, maybe even weeks from now, maybe even days from now, you're going to look back and go, wow, God really moved in that, didn't he? And how many times, for those of us who have a little age on us, how many times have we had those moments where we're sitting there, and I remember I had one one time. It was a bad Sunday night. I just lost my job. I didn't know how I was going to pay for school. And I looked down, and I was on this bench. This is down in South Mississippi. And I was on this bench, and I realized there were cockroaches crawling all over my shoes. And it was just awful. And I was like, great, God. This is, yeah, what, what are you doing with me, God? And now I look back on it with embarrassment that I had any doubt that God wasn't at work in that because he was. So church, God has a plan. Folks, God has a plan. And for those of you who don't know Christ yet, let me make sure you understand something. 
Many, many, many people at night, when they're getting ready to go to bed, they make sure that TV is on, or they make sure the music's going, or they make sure that they've got some sort of chemical or pharmaceutical enhancement that allows them to go to sleep, because they know that in their heart of hearts, if they lie there in the still quietness of the night long enough, they're going to have to listen to the voice of God that's pleading with them to give it up and release it to Jesus. Some of y'all here in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you've never given it over to Christ, if you've never accepted that plan that God laid out from the foundations of the earth, then you need to give God his due and accept that he has a plan for you. Fear not. God's got a plan. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we are a people who can rely on you. God, it's not just a plan uh, for you to show off. But it's a plan that reminds us that when you created us, you loved us, that you continue to love us. God, you know everything about us. You know the failings that we have. You know the weaknesses that we have, and you love us anyways. God, help us to cling to the plan that you have made manifest to us through the coming of Jesus Christ. God, help us to have confidence because you are not surprised. Help us to have passionate peace because the God who created the universe loves each and every one of us and loves us so much that his son came to die for us, to redeem us. So God, even in this time of decision and invitation, I I just pray that uh, in our seats, we will commit ourselves to peace. But for those that need to claim your peace for the first time, that you would encourage them to come on down the aisle and make that that commitment public, that we can uh, rejoice and celebrate in the conversion that comes from embracing God's plan for us. God, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.